you need a Bible from the back of the pew, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're in the middle of the first section of the book of Leviticus. um, Where it's laying out the five basic sacrifices um, of Jewish life. Many of these are incorporated into the festivals of Israel or special occasions. um, The dedication of the priests or the temple, for example. Um, But these five are the ones that for your average Israelite would have made up parts and portions of their year. The first three that we looked at, the burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering in chapter 2, and the peace offering in chapter 3, all are followed with a statement that says, uh, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They stand together. All three of them are what we call free will offerings, meaning that they weren't things that you had to bring because of some pre-existing condition. They were ones that you just desired to bring because of what they represented or what they accomplished. In fact, we saw that most often they function together, and so the burnt offering is where your worship begins. The grain offering uh, is, is just freely offering gifts to the Lord, but they all kind of culminate in this fellowship offering, the peace offering, which was a feast Um, that you would eat with your friends and families in the tabernacle um, before God and kind of the pinnacle of Israel's personal, individual worship was in the peace offering. Um, But when we start chapter 4, we look at the last two offerings and they also stand together. They're not free will offerings. They're instigated because of a need, a requirement. You have to bring these offerings if... Um, The two go hand in hand for that reason. They also focus on dealing specifically with sin. So the first three offerings, uh, especially in the burnt offering and the peace offering, they still bring about atonement. There's a recognition that we can't just freely enter into God's presence because of the reality of sin. But both the sin offering and the guilt offering, or the offering of recompense, both of them uh, focus on the fact that something stands between you and other Israelites, something stands between you and God, and the sacrifice is to deal with that, to remove this obstacle for worship. So, for example, say that you desired to offer a burnt offering or a grain offering or a peace offering. If there was sin that you had not yet dealt with, these are the offerings that have to come first. Okay, and so the other ones are offerings of good standing, where you come to worship the Lord. These are ones where you have um, moved from a place of holiness to sinfulness, from cleanliness to unclean. Uh, from righteous to unrighteous. And so they're about setting things right. Okay. Now, it's worth mentioning that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, collectively, we have the most verbally sin-saturated passage in all of the Old Testament. Okay. The word that's used for sin in this passage occurs just under 600 times in the Old Testament, 595 times if you're counting. 
116 of those. So just about 20% of them occur in the book of Leviticus. And of that 116, 53 are in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Okay? And so this is the most densely populated passage using this word sin. Now as a side note and a positive spin, um, this is also the, the densest populated section on forgiveness. In fact, it's interesting that the place where the Bible talks about sin most is in providing a sacrifice to deal with that sin. That's what the focus is here. In fact, some of the times the word is used, it's used as, quote, sin offering and not just something that you've done. So what does the word mean? The one that's used in the Hebrew here that we generally translate as sin in the English um, generally speaks of falling short. In fact, uh, later in Israel's history, there is a group of Benjamite marksmen. They're not archers. They don't use bows. They use slings like King David did. And it mentions the fact that although they're left-handed and trained marksmen, they can hit a target at X amount of yards without missing. And the word there in the text is actually sin, without sinning, okay? And so that's not a commentary on their character, but it does help us understand metaphorically what this word represents. It represents falling short. In fact, my understanding is in, uh, in medieval times, if you went to an archery tournament, think Robin Hood, for example, and they missed the target, it was common still in Old English to call out sin, okay? And so it means to not hit the target, to not arrive. It reminds me of what Paul says in the book of Romans when he says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, right? The arrow hasn't made it all the way to the target, it's hit the ground right in front of it. This is the idea, it, it recognizes that there is a standard of right and wrong and that we don't meet it, okay? And so this is not just, um, not just things that we know are wrong and do them, but also what we call sins of omission, things we know we should do and do not do. It's a very general term. Now, the sacrifices presented here both only deal with a particular type of sin. In fact, we can see that in verse 2 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally. Okay. And so the sins that both of these sacrifices address are unintentional sins. Now, this doesn't just mean accidental, although it includes that. It also means ones that weren't premeditated. Okay. So if you fly off the handle and that anger is sin, that is an unintentional sin. If you sit down and you plan a bank robbery, that categorically is in a different category than these. Okay. And so here it's talking about what we do with unpremeditated or unintentional sin. The Old Testament contrasts this with what it calls high-handed sin. In fact, we might as well take a look at this. Uh, If you flip over a few books to Numbers chapter 15, we can see the distinction between these two categories. First look with me at Numbers 15.25. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake 
and they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. Now contrast that with verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, that person shall be cut off from among his people. So you see the contrast there? These mistaken, these unintentional sins, these ones can be dealt with by sacrifice. But what it calls high-handed sins, um, think of a clenched fist. In, in modern English, the idea is, this, is the same in this posture. A high-handed sin is a different thing categorically. Okay? Now that makes you ask, well, what, what do we do then with, uh, with high-handed sins? What it says there in the text is that they shall be cut off. And that is a, uh, a primary term used in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And a little bit difficult to nail down. It's hard to tell if cut off means you should exclude them like some form of isolation or um, excommunication, or if it means you should put them to death, or if it means this is a punishment that God brings. So if you were cut off, uh, old Jewish rabbis thought that that might be fulfilled either through childlessness or premature death. Okay? It's hard to tell. I would actually argue that the term is broad enough that sometimes it means one of those and sometimes it means another in context points us to it. But the recognition here is that, um, that sin has consequences. And that, for example, let's, let's just take this as an example. You plot your neighbor's murder and you take his life. You can't flee to the temple and offer a sacrifice and therefore be spared your own life, right? This isn't a get-out-of-consequence reality. It's something else than that, okay? Now, we'll also recognize uh, that these Two offerings require that they be given with confession. And then we'll see with the recompense offering that restitution has to be made. And the rabbis said that, uh, that confession and repentance and restitution made an intentional sin, a high-handed sin, an unintentional one. Okay? So they looked at this and basically the line they drew is that you have to, you have to repent of high-handed sin in a very profound way. You have to own up to it. You have to do your time. Um, others believe that these high-handed sins were only dealt with by the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement. Okay, And so you could deal with the unintentional sins on your own, but it was that that dealt with all of the bigger issues. It is intriguing to me that by the time you get to the New Testament, it plays up the importance of our ignorance in our own sin. Do you remember what Jesus prays to the Father as he dies on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, that's strange when you read it and think about it. Every swing of that hammer, every uh, you know, shout in the audience of crucify him, every plotting of the Pharisees of how are we going to get rid of this Jesus guy, right? There's a ton of intention in that. But he looks at it, and he says there's an ignorance built into it as well. Paul says something similar when he talks about his own life. He says that God was faithful counting him into the ministry, although he was a blasphemer and a murderer, but he did those things out of ignorance. Okay? And so maybe it'd be appropriate to make a comparison between 
high-handed sin and what Jesus calls uh, the uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit that shall not be forgiven, okay? What I'm trying to help us recognize tonight is that um, these two offerings have to do with what you realize when you've gone wrong and you want to set it right. Okay, that's very clearly the case. The, uh, we'll see some examples of this, and you'll see the unintentionality doesn't dig down to the root, meaning that you didn't choose to do it in the moment. So, for example, we'll see a man who, um, who doesn't go forward and testify when he was an eyewitness of a crime. For whatever reason, he doesn't raise his hand and say, yeah, I saw what happened. He can fix that. It doesn't mean that he wasn't intentional when he went, yeah, I'm not going to voice this. It's not like, oh, the court date was today. That's not the problem, right? But what this is really about is, is how you prepare for the sin and then what you do afterwards. And so these two offerings are provided for unintentional sin. Um, it says here, if anyone sins unintentionally, verse 2 again, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, okay? So outside of that one does unintentionally, it's a very broad category. If anyone in any way breaks any of the rules, right? It's very broad. This is what they are to do, verse 3. If it is the anointed priest who sins, and so what we have following here is a delineation of the different people, and so we'll see the high priest, We'll see the whole congregation of Israel. We'll see the leaders of Israel. And then we'll see an individual Israelite. Now, why does it categorize them differently? As we'll see in just a minute, uh, the offering that they need to bring to set things right is greater the higher they are on the list. And so the most important offering is the high priest and the whole congregation of Israel, which are equal. Okay. Then we have the leaders of Israel, which is a slightly lesser sacrifice. And then we have the common Israelite, which is a less sacrifice. Okay? And so as we read through this, what we need to recognize right off the bat is, is that here, built into the way sin is set right, is a recognition of responsibility. Right? There's a higher consequence of the sins of the high priest than any old Israelite. There's a higher responsibility that comes with his position. In fact, because the sin offering is not merely, as we'll see, about our relationship vertically with God, but always our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, the recognition is that when the high priest sins, he puts the whole nation at risk, right? If, if he's got undealt with sin in his life and he's there on the Day of Atonement representing Israel, he's representing Israel soiled in his own sins. And this is something I don't know if we always think about, but it's worth recognizing that with positions of power, with authority, with higher standings and responsibilities, we can do a lot of damage. I mean, I think we feel this very profoundly right now because we're not exactly sure what decisions our president is going to make over the next seven and a half years. If he decides to go to war, we go to war, right? That's serious and tremendous consequence that comes with that role. 
And so in the same way here, we see that there's a sliding scale of how serious the sin is and therefore how demanding the offering to set it right. And this is something we need to own up for. It's very easy for us as Americans especially to think of our lives as being hermetically sealed from other people and individual. We don't love any excuse for our sin more than I'm not hurting anybody else. 99% of the time that's just a foolish and untrue statement. Right? The father who spends all of his money on drink says that, but it impacts his children and his wife. Of course it does. The politician who, uh, you know, it, it's just we, the interconnectedness of human life means that it's very, very difficult for our decisions not to have impact on people around us. Okay? And so before we get into the offering that's presented here and what to do with sin, we have to recognize the seriousness, the responsibility of our lives in relationship to other people. Reflect on your own life for a second. Reflect on the consequences that you've had to bear because of the bad behavior of others, because of your family because of your neighbors, because of your educators, because of your employers or your employees. I can remember an occasion where my sister, who was in a class with a close friend of mine who was not the most friendly person, um, was one of those guys that you might enjoy but everyone couldn't stand on one occasion or another. Anyways, they're in class, the teacher had left the room and he decided it'd be very funny to roll the projector cart in front of the door so that when the door to the classroom was opened again, it would knock over the projector cart. And everybody in the room was feeling the weight of this scenario and begging him to move it until the inevitable happened. The teacher came back and it was knocked over. And I'll tell you what, the entire class experienced the consequence of that. It was pretty easy to pick out who had done it, but every test he graded the rest of the day, right, was through those red-eyed lenses of anger and frustration. Uh, and um, that's, that's the thing that we have to recognize, and the Bible recognizes it directly, and it's worth mentioning here, and granted, this is in the wilderness of Sinai, this is before the monarchy of Israel, but notice who the first one on the list is. It's not the leaders of Israel. And I'll tell you what, the Pentateuch is totally okay talking about future kings, in Deuteronomy, it's going to go, when you have a king, let's talk about the rules for kings. Okay? Who is first in the docket here? Whose sin is so serious that it's equal, equal with the entire nation of Israel collectively? The high priest. Okay? And so what does he say? He says, if it is the anointed priest, verse 3, who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people... See the correlation there? It's not just bringing guilt on himself. It's bringing guilt on the people. Then he shall offer for the sin offering that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Okay. Now it tells us what the sacrifice looks like. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. So already we're seeing some of the symbolism that we are familiar with from past sacrifices. It's brought to the tabernacle. 
the uh, offeree, in this case the high priest, lays his hand on the animal, identifying with what a, what's about to happen, which is that this innocent animal is going to die instead of him. Right? And so he lays his hand on the head of the animal, and then he takes its life. He kills the bull before the Lord, verse 5. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now, another thing you'll notice in these offerings as we go forward is it's not just the cost of the sacrifice that changes. It's also what what happens with the blood. And so for the high priest, he takes it all the way into the holy place this front room of the tabernacle, and he sprinkles it against the curtain that divides the holy place from, uh, from the holy of holies, okay? Um, we continue here, verse 7. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that's in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So I want you to notice here that there's two cleansings going on. Really, this offering is about, um, about purification. In fact, the word that's used here for forgiveness comes from an ancient word that means to wash clean, okay? And so the recognition here is not only has his actions made him unclean, but it's also made the tabernacle where he operates unclean. That's why the blood has to be taken into the holy place. He's desecrated the house of God with his presence, you see, we'll see this as we go on in the book of Leviticus, but the, the, the way that it wants us to think about sin is like a contaminant, okay? That it actually impacts other people's life contagiously. And so here the idea is that the tabernacle, not just the priest, but the tabernacle has to be cleansed because of his sin all the way up to where he goes into the holy of holies the day of atonement he also offers a sacrifice for his own sin and brings that in as well as the sacrifice of israel into the final in the holy place but the blood the cleansing has to go all the way in um so what's it say in verse eight and the fat of the bowl of the sin offering he shall remove from it the fat that covers the entrails all the fat that's on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. It's good news because it means I don't have to talk about it again. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dungs, dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and he shall burn it up on a fire of wood on the ash heap it shall be burned up so do you notice the contrast here between this and the burnt offering the burnt offering they would put the entire animal on the altar and it would be consumed entirely here just the fat parts are burned on the altar the entirety of the animal head legs all of its meat Uh, Everything else is carried outside of the tabernacle all the way to the edge of the camp of Israel and burned in a set-aside ash heap place, okay? It's a holy place. It's consecrated. You can't, it's not a trash dump, 
It's only for this use, but it's away from the city. This is such a serious thing that we'll find out in a few chapters that any time a priest did this ritual, the sin offering, he had to change his clothes. Okay? So he would change into his normal clothes, carry it out to the ash heap, and then come back and change back into his priestly garments. Okay? So what is the difference between these two things? It's not hard for us to nail down. Remember, we talked about how the burnt offering does two pieces of identification for the offerer. The first is it recognizes that the animal dies instead of the offerer. That he can't enjoy offering his life, dedicating his life, entering into God's presence as he is because of sin. And so this animal dies in his place. But after that, as the animal is burned completely in the offering, and as it ascends, and that's what the word burn actually means, the smoke is what it emphasizes, as it ascends, it's as if the offerer ascends into the heavens with, with the smoke of the sacrifice. Not so here, Right? Instead, the offering is removed from the tabernacle and dealt with away. As you get into the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find constant reflection on the fact that when we are forgiven of sin, God removes it from us, right? And that's the idea here, okay? And so it's as if the animal becomes the sin, and then the sin is removed, not merely from the offer or the tabernacle, but from the entire camp of Israel and dealt with elsewhere. There's a similar practice on the Day of Atonement. There's actually two sacrifices in day, on the Day of Atonement, and one's referred to as the scapegoat. And that one is, after confession is given, run out of the camp. Okay? And so there's this dual symbolism in the Day of Atonement that there's both this thing that happens in the holy place and then there's the recognition that our sins are removed from us, far away from us. And so it continues here. Verse 12, All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap, shall burn it on fire and wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Okay. Now one last thing I want to mention here. The author of Hebrews points out that even this point of correspondence, the fact that it's consumed outside the camp, correlates with what happens to Jesus. Right? Jesus isn't killed where he's sentenced in the pavement, right? in the praetorium. He's taken outside the city and crucified there. And so even in that sense, this is pointing forward to the reality and there's, uh, there's an imagery in the fact that as Jesus carries our sins and he's crucified on the cross, there's a removal of sins. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so just like this animal takes on the contaminant of our sin and it's removed from us and consumed elsewhere, so also was Jesus on the cross not just carrying our sin, but the word Paul uses is that he became our sin and that that sin was dealt with, destroyed, removed in its entirety. So 
that gives us kind of the paradigm for the sacrifice. What we'll focus on now is the differences as we move forward for different categories of people. Verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt. So the idea here is of collective sin. And this, by the way, is another thing that's worth pointing out. You cannot understand what the Bible means as sin if you try and think of it merely as something that individuals do. There is such a thing as societal evil, as structural injustice. There is such a thing as a culture of sin. And there's a recognition there that you're going with the flow, but that doesn't excuse you from the reality of it. Okay? We are co-participants in the sin of our community, in the sin of our nation. Just look at how the prophets talk about the treatment of the oppressed. Does that mean that every Israelite is oppressing? No, but the nation as a whole is oppressing, and that includes us. Okay? And so we see here uh, that there's a way to set things right if the congregation becomes aware that they have broken collectively as a nation the commandments of the Lord. Verse 14, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meaning. And so once again, it's a bull from the herd. Um, Notice it says when the sin becomes known. I think it's worth mentioning, I meant to mention it earlier, that this includes not just out of your mind sins, not just emotionally overwhelmed sins, not just my tongue got away from me sins, but actual unintentional sin. Okay? This is another thing that I think is really important because we believe that intentions are everything. We rake our life based on intentions. In fact, there's entire schools of ethical thought where that's really the only determination you can make about right and wrong is what you were trying to do. And so as long as your intentions were good. But here's the thing you have to recognize. If there really is a standard of good and evil, then when we do wrong things, absentmindedly or no, they bring about wrong consequences. They impact other people's lives, right? Think in terms of of poison. If you accidentally flavor food with poison and then feed it to people, they're poisoned. There's no, I mean, there is an oops, And it's even a justified oops, it's an accident. But the thing we have to understand about sin is part of the reason it's sinful is not just because God doesn't like it, it's because it destroys. And so taking sin seriously takes up, owns up for the fact uh, of, of sins even when they're unknown and they come to our attention. Honestly, even in our world, we have recognition of this. Sometimes our conscience deepens And then we look back over our lives and suddenly we don't feel the same about everything we've been doing, right? About the places where we've been purchasing our clothes, for example, or about the things that we've been ingesting or about the things that we've participated in, right? There's a difference between being tech-savvy and embracing all of technology and being tech-savvy after you understand the difficulties of factories like Foxconn, right? And the suicides because the labor is so hard. There's a difference between those two things, but the impact is the same. So sometimes, sometimes we even recognize this and we we seek a way to set things right. Whether we make a vow and say, I'm never going to participate in these things and I'm going to be vigilant. 
right? My wife knows something about vigilance because, uh, because ingredients matter. And so when she picks up a box at the grocery store, not just to avoid saturated fats, but to avoid all sorts of made-up, man-made terms that mean dangerous, poison, toxic things, she reads every label, every one. And she's incredibly hard to satisfy, right? We've had experiences like this. The recognition here is the same. Even if your sin is unknown and it comes to be, when we're thinking about it rightly, that doesn't make it any better. And so, like the high priest, they're to offer, they're to offer a bull. Now, notice it doesn't say a bull without blemish. That's the only difference between this and the high priest. And so, even here, the high priest standard is a little bit more. But they do need to bring a bull. And then notice verse 15. The elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. And the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Now, why isn't it all of Israel? Two very obvious reasons. One, not everybody gets to touch the bull. Right? We're talking about a very large group of people. But second, why the elders? Because they're taking responsibility for the nation. Right? And so they lay their hands and they make confession. Now, why is confession a requirement here? Why does this sacrifice, why can't we just go through the motions? It's important to remember that this is not magic, okay? The Bible is not presenting something that functions like Clorox bleach, right? And it's just, you add it and voila, brighter whites than ever. That's not how this works. There is a symbolism here. The symbolism is intentional. But if you remove the ritual from changing the heart, it's meaningless, In fact, this is one that's worth drawing our attention to because this is the confession of elders and this is something we long for in politicians, is it not? To own up. It's essential to the dealing with sin in in the Bible that you confess your sins. The word confession, um, the one that we get from the New Testament, the Greek word, means to agree. It's like saying, hear, hear, I agree. Okay? It's saying what God says is wrong is wrong and he's right that I am guilty of it. Okay, that's what confession means. As we'll see in a little bit, one of the reasons why confession is important is because these things have gone hidden. Right? They were unknown. They were unrecognized. Sometimes they were accidental. Listen, it's not enough if your sin has hurt other people to just privately and quietly ask for forgiveness. And it's not because God requires confession to make it work. It's because confession is an aspect of a changed heart. Confession is a demonstration of repentance. Okay? There's a difference between what uh, Paul calls worldly sorrow, which is, I can't believe I got caught. I'm so sorry I got caught. Right? And a godly repentance, a godly sorrow, which says, I can't believe I did that. Okay? Confession is a good way to pair between the two. Spurgeon said that true repentance, uh, true repentance means that somebody will be known for their repentance in a greater way than they are for their sin. That's impossible without confession. And remember that this is happening not in a confessional, right, where there's priest and confessor confidentiality, this is happening publicly in the tabernacle aloud. That's true of all of these sacrifices. 
okay? And as we'll see, that's significant because some of these things are going to involve legal battles, okay? And so confession means agreeing, and when your sin involves other people, it means confessing your sin to them. It means asking for forgiveness, not just from God, but forgiveness for those who you have sinned against. So we continue here. They make their confession, verse 16, then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger on the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, just like we read earlier. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar in the tent of meeting before the Lord, that's the incense altar again, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and all its fat he shall take and burn on the altar. Thus he shall do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And so here we see atonement and forgiveness. We've talked about atonement already, but let me just remind you that the core word, the root word here, comes from the idea of a ransom. And the Hebrew idea of ransom recognizes that your life is already forfeit, and that a lesser penalty has been employed by the one you offended, to spare you, okay? And so when atonement is made here, instead of death, because the Bible says for the wages of sin is death, this offering has taken the punishment in your place. That's what atonement means. And then it says, and they shall be forgiven. And I wanted to remind you that the word here for forgiven, um, it comes from this root word that means to wash clean, okay? You see, the sin offering sees sin as something that contaminates that dirties, that soils, and needs to be cleansed. The next offering we'll look at takes a different metaphor. But this is one of contamination. Also, when it says here, they shall be forgiven, the word that's used here, there's other words for forgiveness where I can forgive you, and it's used freely in the Hebrew in that way, one person to another. This one is only used when God is the subject. Okay, this, what it's talking about here is something only God can do. So whatever it means to forgive yourself, it's not what we're talking about. Whatever it means to seek forgiveness from another person, that's not it. This is the big capital F forgiveness, okay? And it's something only God can do. God is the only subject. This is why in Mark chapter 2, when some friends of a paraplegic let him down through a roof to get him before Jesus so he can be healed, and before saying anything about his physical condition, Jesus says, son, Your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders are there go, what? Who can forgive sins but God? This is what they're thinking of. Okay? Do not read that story and think that they don't understand forgiveness. They're absolutely right to recognize that Jesus has just employed a divine prerogative, something that only God can do. That's why Jesus is doing it. He's demonstrating the fact, and that's why he goes on and he says, what's easier? What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man can forgive sins, and he heals the man. What is he saying? He's like, well, let's see if I do any other God-like things. And he takes a man with a permanent physical condition and he heals him. Right? It's a visible manifestation of the one that's harder to see. It's easy for him to see your sins are forgiven. How can we know that's the case? Okay, because Jesus demonstrated his personality and his character across 
his life. Okay. And so uh, this forgiveness here is a cleansing of sin, that there's nothing between. This is why, Paul, uh, why David says in the Psalms, how blessed is the man to whom God does not impute sin. You know those substances that repel other substances like water and oil? The idea of not being able to impute, that's the idea that, that if you try and slap it on, it just slides right off. Okay? The way that the uh, Leviticus is talking about sin here is that there's no longer a connection between you and your sin. That forgiveness means that that's been dealt with, washed away, removed from the camp, no longer an issue. And so when God looks at you, he sees you as clean. And you go, but isn't that just semantics? Isn't that God just saying something that's not true against the reality? One, remember, this is not just a verbal happening. It's a sacrifice, right? There's a cost to this. But two, remember that this is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, there's power in the word of God because it's God's word. And so here he's forgiven, verse 21, he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things of the commandments of the Lord is God that ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. Now this brings out another thing that's really important. Do not rely on your own internal standard for sin. The Bible makes very clear that one of the byproducts, one of the consequences of sin is blindness. And it's pretty easy to understand. I've always thought of it this way. I know that you guys are too healthy to go to McDonald's, but you were there once. Do you remember how annoying it is when the fry alarm goes off? It's always annoying for me. Maybe I'm the only one who notices. The reason it annoys me is because I seem to be the only one who can hear it. And I know those employees know what it means And I also know that they're the only ones on the right side of the counter to do anything about it. And so it drives me crazy to just hear it going on and on. Why don't they respond to it quicker? It's because they're used to hearing it. Right? When sin is fresh in our life, we do it with hesitation. Our conscience screams at us and we get dragged into it. But we muffle our conscience over time. We grow blind to our sins because we excuse it. We explain it away. We justify it. It doesn't make it any safer. Our familiarity with our sin makes it all the more dangerous. Right? And so what the Bible prescribes for this is what we call community. The truth is, we're all sinners, but we're all uniquely sinners. We sin in different ways. And when you add that to the reality that we're blind to our own sins... It means this idea that nobody knows your sins better than you is probably not true. That's why if you look at your roommates or your siblings, it's so evident to you their worst issues. Think of the conversations you have when you're like, man, I can't believe they're like that person. Do you know that those conversations are had about you? It terrifies me that I don't know what the noun is in that conversation. Man, Justin is so, I don't know what it is. That's horrifying. And so notice here, it doesn't just say if you realize your sin, but if it's pointed out to you. Okay. Now let me put this in context. 
If sin is really damaging, if sin really separates you from God and hinders your relationship from him, then confrontation is a blessing and not a curse. This is why in Proverbs it says that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but the wounds of a friend, right, those are faithful, right? And this is not something that we can do flippantly. You can't just make yourself, you know, the sin cop of your congregation and make it your goal. There's a heart issue here. Jesus said, hey, do not seek to do this minor eye operation when you have a serious trunk removal to do beforehand, right? There's a sensitivity to this. But we should be those who love one another enough to point out the dangerous and volatile sin that's going on in one another's lives. Not just because you make me mad when you do this, but because this is harmful to you in your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And because I love you and want the best for you, I want this to be removed from your life. Okay? Let's continue. So this is a leader, and notice it's different here. Um, verse 24, uh, sorry, verse 23 Sin which he's committed is made known to him. He shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. Okay, so not, not a big expensive bull, a goat. A male without blemish, but a goat. Uh, verse 25, the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Not all the way into the holy place, stays right here at the altar, but the blood is manipulated and uh, it makes atonement. As well, the fat, verse 26, shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings, so the priest shall make atonement for his sin. He shall be forgiven. Now, you may have noticed that that line, he shall be forgiven, wasn't mentioned back with the high priest. I think the most likely reason is because the high priest doesn't get to pronounce his own forgiveness. Right? That's the priest's role. In fact, we're pretty sure, even though it just says he shall be forgiven as an act of history, that it's actually a pronouncement. That the priest would say aloud, you are forgiven. In the New Testament, it tells us to confess our sins to one another. I think this is one of the primary reasons, okay? So that we can verbalize God's forgiveness. Because sometimes we need that. How much of Christian behavior in the church is defined by the church being the body of Christ? And that means speaking forgiveness. Is that not what Jesus told the disciples? If you say to any, their sins are forgiven, they shall be forgiven. If you say to any, your sins are retained, they shall be retained. They are to physically manifest the forgiveness of God because sometimes we don't believe our little brain you're forgiven, right? Our little internal sensibility. Have you ever returned to your own sins again? Like they haven't been dealt with? Like they haven't been cleansed? Sometimes this is what we need. We need somebody to look us in the eye and with love and with confidence say, Jesus died for that, you're forgiven. And that was built into this. So anyways, the high priest doesn't get to say that to himself. He doesn't get to have, you know, one of these Robin Williams statements where he says, I have sinned, I forgive you, right? That's not how this works. Um, and so it's left off the table. Um, so that one is for the leaders. And then finally, for your average Israelite in verse 27, if any of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things by the Lord's commandments that ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he's committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for the sin which he has committed. So just slightly less than the leader. 
That was a male without blemish. This can be a female. Verse 29, he'll lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in place in the place of the burnt offering, and the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. All its fat he shall remove. As the fat is removed from the peace offering, the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, see, there's a choice here. It can be a female goat, but it can also be a female lamb. He shall bring a female without blemish, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. Pour out all the rest at the base of the altar, and all the fat he shall remove, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offering, priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven and so that in every quarter and he shall make atonement for him and his sins shall be forgiven is repeated that's the need that this sacrifice meets the forgiveness of sin the cleansing of sin now what it goes on to do in the next part of chapter five is talk specifically about a certain certain places where the sin offering applies. Look with me at verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he is seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Okay, and so it goes, let's talk about particular instances. And what I think these do is they widen out the corridor. All of us, righteous or unrighteous, religious or unreligious, comfortable with the terminology of sin or not, we have an internal ethic of right and wrong that we live by. Okay. What it does here is it pushes out the envelope and helps us think of a couple of areas that might not occur to us. And the first is not doing something we should have done specifically in witnessing injustice in witnessing crime against someone else. And so there's a call, did anyone witness this? And we think, oh, it's really not convenient. You know, I, I was just passing through. I've got to be somewhere else, you know, or, or it could be something that's much more serious. Like, you know, you witness a high-level organizational crime mob hit, and you don't want to raise your hand and say, yeah, I saw that, right? You're, you're not really thrilled about the idea of the witness protection program being a vital part of your life. Um, and so the recognition here is that a lot of our sin is responsibility that we owe to other people just because they exist, right? Our responsibility that we owe to other people because bad things happen to them. Not that we do bad things, but that we can stop the consequence of bad things. And so what it says here is he shall bear his iniquity. Are there places in your life where you've dropped the ball because it didn't seem like it was your ball to carry? That's, that's the first place it pushes out the boundaries. It continues in verse 2. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it's hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt. Okay, so what's the second one here? The second one is that you've, without realizing it, encountered a dead animal okay now as we'll see later in Leviticus that makes you ritually unclean 
which, which means that you have to be cleansed before you can interact with other people, before you can interact with the tabernacle. And so the idea here is, um, I'm just going to make up something foolish because it'll do the point. Um, imagine that you're an ancient slash modern Israelite and you don't have a good sense of smell and there's an animal that's died in your car and you've been driving in it for weeks and it's not until somebody gets in and goes, what's that smell that you find that right under your feet is a dead cat, okay? That's the idea here, just so you can get the picture. What's striking about it is take that, that image of contamination again. You've gone about your life as if everything's fine and everyone you're encountering, interacting with, you've connect, contaminated as well. Okay? That's the seriousness it wants you to recognize. The emphasis that I want to make tonight that this pushes out the envelope for is this recognition of, once again, accidental sin. It's this recognition that not everything in our life are we fully aware of that doesn't remove the consequences, right? If, you're, uh, if your business has some tank in the ground that's storing some sort of waste and that tank is ruptured, you may not know about that for months or even years, but it's going to poison the people around you. It's going to impact their lives. That consequence isn't removed just because you, you were unaware. It adds here, and it adds human uncleanness, verse 3, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever the sort of uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Okay, so that's the same category. But look at this last one, verse 4. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good of, or any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him. Now, notice what hidden from him means there. It came out of your mouth. It's not like you said it in your sleep, okay? But you weren't fully aware of what you were doing, right? I have heard words come out of my kid's mouth that I know they learned from me. I don't necessarily remember saying them in front of them, right? The idea of a rash oath is that you have taken a vow, you have sworn in the name of God, and here it points out some of those are even to do evil, right? Or... Uh, you've sworn rashly to do good, and the idea here is that, you know, the emotions cool down and you go, oh, that was not a good idea, and you don't keep your promise, right? You go, come on, I was, you know, high on endorphins, I never should have committed to that. You have to recognize, right, that's, that's a serious thing, it has consequences, and so what does it say? If it's hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin that he has committed. Here's the recognition. When we make self-determinations, that's what a vow is. We say, I will do this. We're in holy ground. Because I'll point something out to you. There is no personal guarantee to your statements of self-determination. It is just as likely as anything else that you can make that vow and drop dead the next minute from a heart attack, right? God is the only one in the universe who can make statements and fully, consistently, and without fail has the ability to carry them out. That does not mean that you can't make self-determinant statements, it means that you make them recognizing that you're not God. Okay. And sometimes this is just in the way that we plan our lives. And so James says this, look, 
Don't say, next year I'm going to go to such and such a place and do such and such a business. Say, if the Lord wills. Okay? All that does, all that is, is preaching truth to yourself and going, oh, that's right, I'm not God. I can't say, let there be light and there is light. And I can't say, I'm going to start this business and it's going to be awesome. And I can't even say, next week I'm moving to Mexico. Right? So many things can get in the way. Sometimes they're things that involve our personal life. Sometimes they're big things that we didn't see coming. Like maybe you have a trip planned to a country that's going to be shut down because of war. When we say, if the Lord wills, it recognizes the fact that a good deal of life is out of our control. But even when we make promises, we're kind of standing in the shoes of God. And so that makes them serious. Even though Jesus says, look, don't, don't add oaths to your promises. Don't say, I swear to God I will. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But remember that really God is the only one who with confidence can say yes or no for that matter. That's why I really believe that there is no greater expression of unbelief than the word never. And I know we love to use it. But so often the word never is a proclamation of permanence. It's just a check that we can't cash. But we should take our words seriously. Right? And so that's what it says here, that even just a rash vow, speaking out of turn, saying more than you meant, blurting something out, it needs to be dealt with. So what does it say in verse 6? Uh, verse 5, when he re- realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses he sin- the sin that has been committed. Remember, public confession. Hey guys, I gotta let you know that dinner I put out last night, it was expired. And so I hope none of you get sick, right? That's why confession matters in this case. Even when it's just talking about ritual uncleanness, there's a serious consequence in this in, the, in Israel because Israel is unique. The kosher law is not for us today because we don't have the tabernacle and a holy God dwelling in our presence. We have something better because of what Jesus has done and the completeness of his sacrifice. But Israel's history is unique because God is present with sinful people and so there are things that have to be navigated and taken care of so that nobody dies. Okay? Um, and even here with the, with the rash oath, confession, not excuse, not, oh man, you know I didn't really mean that. Hey, it was so wrong of me to say I was going to do that when I couldn't confession okay um and then notice it says in verse six he shall bring to the lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed a female from the flock a lamb or goat for a sin offering the priest shall make atonement for him and his sin but if he cannot afford a lamb then he shall bring to the lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering i love that God doesn't want economics to be a barrier to forgiveness. And we have to recognize a good deal of religion outside of Christianity and sometimes built on the back of Christianity has been economically prohibitive. Okay? It says you can only be a Christian, you can only know God, you can only find salvation if you can afford the 995. But written in this is, is What? a desire to forgive, right? This isn't about the sacrifice. 
It's about the change in heart. They need to go through the sacrifice because they need to understand the seriousness of sin and God's provision for it coming in Jesus Christ. But he says, look, if you can't afford a goat, don't walk away and go, well, that's it. No more relationship with the living God for me. This is important because we're really good as human beings of making ridiculous detour paths back to God where we're like, okay, the only way I can fix this A turtle dove will do. God is ever ready and willing to forgive if we'll only come. And so he makes a way for the poor. And then we get a little bit of an explanation because remember birds aren't goats, birds aren't sheep, birds aren't bulls, so it's a little different and it walks us through it in verse 8. He'll bring them to the priest who shall offer the first one for the sin offering. He'll wring its head from its neck, but he shall not sever it completely sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar while the rest of the blood should be drained out at the base of the altar. It's a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him and the sin that he's committed, and he shall be forgiven. Even if it's just a turtle dove, it's enough for atonement. It's enough for forgiveness. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He's willing to even break the symbolism. Just a handful of grain. If that's all you've got, that's enough to set things right. He shall put no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. Why? Because as we learned, oil is a picture of joy. And this is not a joyful thing. We're talking about sin. Frankincense is a picture of worship. And this isn't an act of worship. Right? It's a recognition that we've fallen short. He'll bring it to the priest. The priest shall take a handful as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It's a sin offering, verse 13. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he's committed in any one of these things and he shall be forgiven and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So that's the sin offering. And like I said, the imagery here is one of cleansing. The author of Hebrews picks this up and I want to look at a couple of passages. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews is in the New Testament in the second half. I think on my top hardest Bible books to find, it's number seven. Look at verse 21. Hebrews 9.21, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, this is talking about the priest in the Old Testament, the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, and so it's talking here about purification. The, the metaphor, again, is one of cleansing, cleansing. And then it continues in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you hear the language there, to put away sin? He's clearly got the sin offering in mind. And what he says is that Jesus dealt with sin so fully and completely 
that we are clean. That the sin has been removed from us and totally and fully put away. Turn over to chapter 10 and verse 22. Remember, it's not just the people that are made unclean by the sin. It's also the tabernacle. So notice what he says here in chapter 10, verse 22, about what Jesus has done. He says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so he takes up this imagery, and instead of sprinkling clean the holy place, it's internally, our hearts have been made clean. Okay. What you had in Israel was like if Pigpen was your son. So you constantly clean the kitchen, but every day that Pigpen comes through it, you have to clean the kitchen again. What God has done in Jesus Christ is he's given Pigpen a bath. Do you see the distinction there? It's not just the cleansing through blood of the tabernacle of the holy place. We are now the holy place and we've been made clean. Let's go back to Leviticus. The last of the five offerings is called in your Bible the guilt offering. It's not so much about this psychological reality of guilt. It's really the difference between this and the sin offering is that this one comes with restitution. Meaning it's not enough just to offer the offering, you also have to set things right with the one that you've taken advantage of. For the most part, the guilt offering deals with sins that somehow financially impinge someone else. Okay, look at verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as a compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done, amiss the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. Okay, so the idea here is if somebody accidentally takes one of the tools of the tabernacle and uses it as if it was just another spoon, okay? Maybe in this process, they accidentally pocket it and take it out of the tabernacle. It's not enough for them just to return it and say, sorry. They have to uh, provide restitution. It's value plus 20%, okay? Now, the recognition here, again, is one that these actions are communal, right? The defiling something in the tabernacle is not just an accident. It impacts the tabernacle, which means it impacts other people's lives. Uh, So the atonement, the ram is given as a guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. Notice what it says in verse 17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that the Lord has commanded ought not to be done, though he did not know it and realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So it's very similar here to the sin offering, but notice as it continues in chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security... The first thing I want you to notice is a breach of faith against the Lord. And then what does it say? Deceiving his neighbor. Here's one of the things that you cannot do very easily. Disconnect your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Do you see how the two go together? You can't say, oh, I sinned against my neighbor without sinning against the Lord. And at the same time, 
as we saw with the tabernacle, you can't sin against the Lord actually desecrating something holy without sinning against the community. They're intertwined. This is why Jesus said these two commandments sum up the whole law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor and yourself. This is why John in 1 John presses further and say, don't say that you uh, love God who you've never seen while you hate your neighbor who you see all the time. Right? The two go hand in hand. All people are made in the image of God which means what you do to them, how you treat them, directly reflects on how you view God. Okay? This is why murder is so serious in the Bible, because God gave life to that person. Who are you to take it away? This is why we take abortion as Christians so seriously, because that's not just a fetus. It's in the image of God. It's a life that God has given and so how we treat, especially for the God who's a father to the fatherless, how we treat defenseless, young, and unborn reflects on how we feel about God and how we keep his law. You cannot disconnect these two things. And so what it says here specifically, though, is if you breach a faith against the Lord by deceiving your neighbor in matter of positive security or through robbery or if he suppressed his neighbor. For to, to understand this, you have to go back to the book of Exodus and remember what happens when a crime is unsolved. So it mentions here somebody entrusts something to you and then they come back and they go, I don't know what happened to it. It must have been stolen. Suspicious, right? But wait, maybe they don't find it. There's no eyewitnesses. What they would do is bring him before the tabernacle and the judges, and he would take a vow. And he'd say, I swear to God I did not take that. And they would let it go. Okay? That's what it's talking about here. If you have taken the vow that you were innocent and you were not, okay, what do you do about it? Once again, notice that it's not enough just to go offer a sacrifice to appease your conscience. You have to to set things right, and that's what sets this sacrifice apart. It's not merely confession, but restoration, okay? I argued earlier that all sin impacts the people around us, but there are times when we take advantage of others, right? When we defraud others. Notice the other ones listed here, or through a robbery, or if he's oppressed his neighbor. If you've been taking advantage of your neighbor in some way, verse 3, or has found something lost and lied about it, okay? The Bible makes clear that, it, that finders keepers is not a rule, that we have a responsibility to whoever lost that thing to get it back to them. If you decide to keep it, you're on the list. You need to offer a guilt offering. You lost and you lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and he realizes his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth, that's 20% to it, and give it to him who, he, who it belongs to on the day he realizes his guilt. So notice a couple of things here. Before it even gets to the sacrifice, he's got to set things right, and that doesn't just mean returning what he's taken, but adding to it a value of 20%. Now as a side note, Getting caught in a crime of theft, the price is higher, okay? And so there's an advantage here in confessing, but this is a very public thing, okay? You're owning up and saying, hey, I lied, I took this, 
I want to set things right. Here it is and 20% of its value on top of that. That is restoration, okay? On top of that, there's also a sacrifice. Why? Because they've done this in the name of God, right? They've taken a vow publicly before the Lord that they had not done this even though that they had, okay? And so there's a recognition here of a two-way street of restoring the one you've sinned against and bringing a sacrifice before the Lord. Verse 6, he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven of any of the things that, he, that one may do and thereby become guilty. Okay, and so... Taking advantage of other people can be forgiven, but it requires restoration. Now, that doesn't make the forgiveness conditional. It makes the repentance conditional. The idea here is, that was way worse, so I'm not forgiving you unless it costs you. No, it's if you're really repentant about that, you'll desire to set things right. Okay? This is probably best expressed in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. In the first century, that means that he made his living on his own decision of how much profit um, because the Romans would come and say, okay, we want you nationalists, we want you Israelites to collect taxes from your neighbors. This is the amount you have to bring in. Anything you bring above that is your pay. And so what happened? Tax collectors would make high and extortionate demands to get rich, okay? That was intentional, that knew the Romans, that, that made sure the Romans would get their piece of the pie, right? Because the advantage for the tax collector was so high. They were despised by the Jews. Not merely because they worked for Rome, but also because they took advantage of their own family, their, of the Israelites. So Zacchaeus is one of these guys. He's not very liked. He hears that Jesus is passing through town. He's a short guy. He climbs into a tree, and Jesus stops, looks into the tree, addresses him by name, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down right now because I'm eating at your place today. He invites himself over for lunch. By the time the lunch is over, Zacchaeus stands up, and he says, anything I have taken, I will restore fourfold. That's not 20 times. That's 400%. And he says, and after that, I'll give half of my income to the poor. And Jesus says, surely today salvation has come to this house. Do you notice the order there? Jesus doesn't go, hey man, it's not too late. You can fix this. Just go out. No, it, it overflows out of Zacchaeus' heart. He sees the result of sin, not just the consequences of sin. Zacchaeus doesn't go, oh man, I am headed to hell. He goes, I have been a demon. And he seeks to set things right. A repentant heart will always want to set things right, okay? Now, there's parts of that you can't do. There are relationships that you have damaged so badly that even if they can forgive you, the relationship can't be restored. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, as much as it is possible and it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can ask for forgiveness. That doesn't mean that they'll verbalize forgiveness. You can seek to rebuild but it takes two people to build a relationship. That's true. But a repentant heart will seek to set things right. And that's what we see here. This is still important to us as Christians. Okay? Now we're going to see in a second that Isaiah uses this offering to talk about what Jesus was going to do. Okay? And I'll talk about that in just a second. But don't forget 
what Jesus said about when we worship in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He said, if you're at the altar and you remember that your neighbor has something against you, go and set that right first and then offer your gift at the altar. Okay. Let me put it in modern communication. If you're at church on a Sunday morning and you're about to partake of communion and you realize there's someone sitting in the room and there's something between you, some undealt with sin, don't take communion until you've said it right. Okay. Restitution. Restoration. Forgiveness here in correlation to forgiveness here. Okay. So, like I said, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53... As it pictures this Messiah who is to come, who will be crushed and broken, who God will use to deal with the sins of many, he refers to him as this kind of an offering. Not merely a sin offering, but a guilt offering. Now here's, here's what I want us to understand before we move forward on, on these two offerings. The sin offering is, the, the imagery is one of purification. That sin makes us unclean, and through forgiveness we can be cleansed. The guilt offering or the offering of recompense, that's an imagery of debt. We put ourselves in debt to God and in debt to others because of our sins. We owe them something and we didn't give it to them. And so now we're in their debt. And what it says in, in Isaiah 53 is that that debt has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Walter Kaiser. He's talking about these two sins here, and he compares them. This is, I think, helpful. He says, the sin offering represents the passive aspect of the death of Christ in that he met the demands of the law by dying in the place of sinners. In other words, Jesus' death, what we call his passive righteousness, that he died in our place, that's to fulfill what was required in the sin offering, right? And then taken out of the camp and burned to deal with our sin. He goes on, he says... Uh, but the guilt offering represents the active aspect of the work of Christ in that he carried out the will of God completely by an act of voluntary obedience. In other words, he didn't just become our sin, he willingly and obediently did what God asked him to, right? In fact, his whole life, he always did the things that pleased the Father. The debt that we owe God is remedied in a perfect life offered in our place, Okay? And so not only does Jesus deal with our sin, but he's also been righteous on our behalf. Not only does he cleanse us of the dirt of our sin by taking it away from us, taking it upon himself and dying in our place, but he also lived the life we couldn't live to pay the debt that we owe. He says, it's a payment of debt to render satisfaction for the reparation of the wrong committed, thus making reinstatement to the covenant family possible. In other words, to sum it up, God has done everything we need to deal with our sin in Jesus Christ. Both the sin and the guilt offering and the offering on the day of atonement and the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, all of those point forward to and picture what God would do in Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. I'd love to finish chapter 6. Now, what happens now? Chapter 6 and 7 pivots, whereas 1 through 5 is talking to the whole congregation of Israel about the sacrifices that they're going to bring. Chapter 6 and 7 focuses on the role of the priest. 
So to some degree, it walks through the same things we've been talking about, but it adds parts that are priest-specific, okay? So it'll be a little bit of a review, but it will bring out some new things. First, verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Okay, the first thing we see here is that the priest was responsible to make sure that that altar was always burning. Okay, once it's lit, in fact, it may be, if I'm reading the story rightly, when they dedicate the temple and they put the first sacrifice, it says that fire came out and consumed Uh, the offering on the altar, that's God-given fire that they need to just stoke the flames to. But even if that's a misunderstanding, even if they start the fire, the point is that it's always to be burning. In other words, the door, the door to a relationship with God is to remain always open. Do you guys remember that tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree folk song? The premise is that... uh, a guy goes off to war and he's writing his girlfriend and he says, if you still love me, then when I come home where the train is, you know where the oak tree is, tie a yellow ribbon on it so I don't have to face anything, I'll just know. And he pulls up and every tree in the area has a yellow ribbon around it. Right? The idea is the same here. The altar is always burning. It's a 24-7 opportunity for forgiveness and repentance. So the priests have to keep it burning. Verse 10 The priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarments on his body. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced and the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So you see here again, every time he leaves the tabernacle, he has to leave his uniform behind. Okay. Imagine if you were working at McDonald's and every time you took out the trash, you had to just put on your normal clothes, carry it out, and then put your uniform back on. Or in Disneyland, you may not have noticed this, but the characters who are in costume have very rigid rules for things they're not allowed to do. You will not find them in the public restrooms of Disneyland, right? Or texting on their cell phone. Before they can do that, they have to be behind closed doors so the illusion is not broken. It's the same idea here, okay? A distinction is made between the priest in the tabernacle and James outside the tabernacle. And so even if he's doing priestly duties, he leaves the tabernacle, he leaves his uniform behind. Um, He says, verse verse 12, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn it on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. Emphasizing that, verse 14. Uh, and this is the law of the grain offering. The son of Aaron shall be offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of grain offering, its oil and all the frankincense that's in the grain offering, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. And so here it emphasizes the fact that except for the memorial portion, the grain offering is the food for the priests. Okay, it's to be for them. Verse 16, the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat, shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It's a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guild offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offering. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Or more accurately, anything that touches them must be holy. Okay, so this is not... 
This is not bread that they can share even with their non-priest family, let alone with the other tribes of Israel. It's set aside for them. Now, why does God do this? There's two reasons. One, in the priest eating of the sacrifice, there's a recognition of the acceptance of the sacrifice before God. That's part of it. But another one is because he wants to take care of the priests. The priest's vocation as priests doesn't allow them to have a side job to take care of their income. And this is why in the New Testament, Paul constantly says it's appropriate that those who are ministers of the gospel are supported by the gospel. And he says, in the same way that we wouldn't muzzle an ox in a field while it's treading out the grain, so also we should support those in ministry. In fact, he points out that Jesus maintained the same thing, that a laborer is worthy of his wages, and that includes missionaries and pastors. And so we see the same thing for the priesthood here. Verse 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer the Lord on the day when he's anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and baked, pieces like a grain offering, and offer it a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A priest from among Aaron's son is anointed to exceed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burnt. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It's not to be eaten." So the priests also had a grain offering to bring, and the only distinction here between the one we read about in chapter 2 and here is that the priests don't get any portion of this. In other words, in their gifts to the Lord, there's not supposed to be any kickback, right? They're not supposed to be, uh, you know, taking from the offering of the people and offering a little bit and saying, well, this counts on mine. Their devotion, their worship, their giving has to be their own, Right? And so here, it's when they make this offering, and it's a free will offering. It's one they do by choice. It's also one they do daily with the burnt offerings. Um, it has to be burned holy. Verse 24. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers uh, it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whoever touches its flesh shall be holy. When any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it's splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessels in which it's boiled shall be broken, but if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, they shall be scoured and rinsed in water. And so here we see that the sin offering, a portion of that meat was, was to go to the priest for their taking care of, but it also recognizes that the blood that it's involved, whether it's spilled on their clothes or even whatever they launder that clothes in, that's serious business. And so if it's a clay pot, it's porous. If there's any chance of the blood getting into the material, the pot's broken and it's gotten rid of. If it's, if it's bronze, then it's scoured. Okay? And so there's a, there's a carefulness to these things. Verse 29, every male among the priests may eat of it. It's most holy, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. What offerings are those? the ones of the whole congregation, and the ones of the priest. Why? Because it's their offering, and they don't get to partake of their offering. As I mentioned, as they would eat of the sin offering, there's a recognition there, this has been accepted before the Lord, but they don't get to do that on their own behalf. Okay, okay I'm making a shotgun decision. I think we'll close there for tonight, as much as I'd like to do chapter 7. So let's pray.
If we learn anything from these chapters in Leviticus, Father, it's that you have made a way for sin to be dealt with. And that's striking. It's powerfully striking because we're the ones who bring sin into the picture. This is something you did while we were the enemies of God, while we were distant from you, while we were acting like rebels and going our own way. That's when you said, here's a way home. And not only that, Lord, but as you created this way that people could freely engage with to deal with their guilt, to restore a relationship with you so that they could offer the peace offering again and enjoy fellowship with you, enjoy life with you, you were also painting a picture of the fact that you were going to provide the sacrifice, that you were going to deal with this not in picture, not impartially, but as we saw in the book of Hebrews, once and for all take care completely and fully and permanently of sin and you were going to be the sacrifice. It didn't come from our account. It was offered freely and out of grace on our behalf. We just praise you for that and I ask that we would enjoy a deeper reality of what we have gained in Christ. That we would see Jesus as both our sin and our guilt offering and that we would know before you And in your presence, we are clean, we are forgiven, we are debt-free, and our relationship has been restored. And I pray, Lord, that that wouldn't foolishly make us think lighter of sin, but that we would recognize that the sin that we allow in our life is so serious that Jesus died for it. And we would seek to flee to the cross whenever we need it, Because we know, as John tells us in 1 John, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for the book of Leviticus, and we thank you for this time together tonight. We ask that as we go, we would go full of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.